Erev Tov, good evening, everyone. It's so good to see many of you. I know others are on Facebook Live. Those of you on Zoom, um, we are going to uh, stay after our hour. Welcome to Temple Israel University, our adult learning at Temple, the big umbrella. This is the third in a series on history and hatred, Judaism and the Jewish people's response in three different eras. Uh, two weeks ago, we discussed the intertestamental period and uh, Jew hatred in the early church that, thank God, we've overcome uh, in the 20th century. Uh, we talked about uh, Iberia, Jews in Spain, and Portugal um, and the response of our people to what they endured uh, in the Middle Ages, ending with, of course, the 15th century. And tonight, to wrap up our three series, we are going to take a look at Judaism's response to hatred um, in the 20th and 19th centuries. I want to thank you again for joining us. TIMemphis.org has a brand new website that is more user-friendly than ever before. The upper right, uh, click on Watch Live. If you went there right now, those of you on Facebook, you could join this right now. If you wanted to join services Friday night, Lynn Owen, I want to give credit to. You'll see her as the Temple Israel Memphis head. She is the facilitator of all our programs. You might say the registrar of our Temple Israel University learning program. There will be learning in person as well as this online always. Um, stay tuned for that. If you're from the South, or even if you are studying the American South, ancestor worship um, is almost obligatory. In other words, as Margaret Renkel, a child of the South and a New York Times writer, um, rightly says, even the tiniest rural communities in Arkansas or Tennessee or Mississippi or Alabama, with more than a red dirt crossroad, has its own graveyard. And those graves are never short of flowers. Sometimes the flowers are made of faded plastic, but they're always a marker of love and reverence for the dead. Many white Southerners um, are still deeply wedded to this ancestor worship and, as we know, dangerously wrong about matters that history, which is the theme of this series, history by now should um, have made abundantly clear. So, for instance, she asks in one of her essays, how could anyone look at the facts of what happened in the South before, during, and after the Civil War and conclude that white Southerners had fought on the side of honor or imply that slavery wasn't really all that bad? How is it even possible for a war story based on chaining human beings, uh, enslaving them, be so whitewashed that nothing remains of the filth and blood and deceptions and true reasons for that war. In a haunting essay in The Atlantic, um, Clint Smith recalls something about the many people he has met who believe such lies. He's, he writes, for so many of them, listen closely, history is not the story of what actually happened. It's just the story they want to believe. Confederate history 
for many in the South is family history. History as eulogy, in which loyalty takes precedence over truth. Consider the matter of Confederate monuments. The men these statues uh, represent. Robert E. Lee, for instance, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, Jefferson Davis, among others. No matter what your politics, and we can definitely disagree on politics, but on matters of history, um, these men were traitors. They betrayed their own country because they wanted to live in a place where it was still legal for white people to own black people. There is a fascination with this period of history in the South. There's a fascination with murderous racism. There's a fascination with murderous anti-Semitism too. As Daryl Horn discusses in her book, People Love Dead Jews. That's the title. These are nonfiction meditations on the murder of Jews, not in the South, but in the Holocaust and the place of the dead in the American imagination. I'm going to be, since this is our last session, I'm going to be blending a number of themes tonight, um, touching on some of what we've done in weeks past. And those of you who didn't see the earlier sessions can always uh, watch them on our webpage. Earlier this month, there was news circulating uh, about the last Jew left in Afghanistan. I don't know if any of you uh, read that article. Um, uh, dozens of countries have had their last Jews. Did you know that within many of your lifetimes, in 1941, Libya, Tripoli, was 25% Jewish. Today, the entire country is Jew-free. Syria had a 1,000-year-old Jewish community. A 500-year-old synagogue destroyed during Syria's recent civil war. And decades after the last Jews have vanished, thousands of years of history are completely erased, remembered only by the descendants of the dead. Sometimes, Dara Horn writes, Something creepier happens. People tell stories about Jews that make them feel better about themselves, patting themselves on the back for their current love for Jews long gone. The self-righteous memory keeping is so much easier without living Jews getting in the way. Places around the world now largely empty of Jews have come to think fondly of the dead Jews who once shared their streets. An entire industry has emerged to encourage tourism to these now historical sites. The locals in some of these places rarely minded when living Jews were massacred or driven out. But now Dara Horn's argument is they pine for the dead Jews, lovingly restoring their synagogues and cemeteries, sometimes also pining for live Jewish tourists. Take Egypt. Egypt's Jewish community was massive. It predated Islam by at least 600 years. And now only a handful of Jews remain. But the government is pouring major funding into restoring synagogues for tourists. And these Jewish heritage sites are in countries ranging from last week's topic of Spain to China. And I want to quote one more um, from Dara Horn. You can read her book, People Love Dead Jews. She says, some are maintained by sincere and learned people with deep research and profound courage. I wish that were the norm. More often, they're like Epcot pavilions, selling bagels and bobbleheads, sometimes hardly even mentioning why this synagogue is now a museum or a concert hall. 
Many Jewish travelers to these sites feel a discomfort they can barely name. What we ought to feel when we visit these historic sites, Dara writes, is rage. Rage over the fact that people decided they no longer wanted to live with those who weren't exactly like them. Societies that were once diverse religious mosaics have become home to no one but Arab Muslims, Lithuanian or Spanish Catholics, or Han Chinese. The unintended cynical use of bygone Jews in history who were subjected to hatred to inspire us borders on the absurd. But that absurdity isn't so far off from our own lip service to diversity, where those who differ from us are wonderful so long as they either see things our way or stay far away. There's a fascination even with Jews in the South, not Jews who were massacred, but dead Jews. Uh, if there's another Wall Street Journal article about the last dying Jew in the Delta, <laughs> the last Jew left in Shemini Atzeret, Mississippi. Um, I'm a Delta Jew by choice. We are a hub here in Memphis for the Delta, for Arkansas. But my friends who live in L.A. and New York, some may be even watching, um, there is an interest that people come through here all the time looking for these Jews in the most remote places. There is a book coming out that just was published, actually, on the Jewish slave owner and braves, uh, brains of the Confederacy, written by a New York um, author. Um, I'll get his name in a minute. It's about Judah Benjamin. You didn't know Judah P. Benjamin was the largest Jewish slave owner in the South. He was a key member of the Confederate President Jefferson Davis's government. Um, he joined the new administration as attorney general, and he actually held three cabinet posts in the Confederacy. Um, after a few months, he became Secretary of War. But after the Confederacy was defeated at Roanoke Island. He was made Secretary of State. He lost his job and was blamed. We'll, we'll see that. And the book lays it out nicely. Um, he unsuccessfully sought alliances with European powers as the Confederate Secretary of State, including England and France. And after the war, um, in the book, the author writes, Davis could have done without any other man in his cabinet, but not Judah Benjamin. So there have been calls to topple the statues. And here in Memphis, we've explained who Nathan Bedford Forrest was. He wasn't a rich businessman. He made his money selling bodies and owning slaves. Um, you will not see the statue of Judah Benjamin be taken down because no statues were erected in the first place. Um, just briefly again about him, he occupies a murky place in American Jewish history because he was among the first Jewish U.S. senators who rose to prominence in national affairs. He's, he's even featured on the Confederate $2 bill. Um, he was a proud defender of slavery. He owned a Louisiana plantation that made him the largest Jewish owner of slaves. Um, but it was public opinion in the South that blamed him um, when the Confederacy and the Confederate Army fell to the Union during the American Civil War. He was subject to much anti-Semitic vitriol despite being known as the brains of the Confederacy. The author is James Traub, um, T-R-A-U-B, Judah Benjamin, counselor to the Confederacy. And he says that 
this man had some very impressive qualities, but of course he did sickening, horrible things, um, being an impassioned defender of slave society. His point is that we just assumed Jews were liberal, progressive, and must have been profoundly troubled by slavery, um, citing the Exodus narrative, Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement of the 20th century. But it's complicated because Southern Jews felt very comfortable and welcome in the South. Um, at the same time, they felt they were there by permission. Um, it would have taken tremendous courage to stand up against slavery as a white Southern Jew. To stand up against slavery as a Southern Jew, there was no such thing. Um, I, I became enthralled with this person. Um, many of you may know about Judah Benjamin. He was born into a British family on the Caribbean island of St. Croix, which is part of the U.S. Virgin Islands in 1811. He went on to live in um, Charleston as a boy and uh, later New Orleans, um, which was a bustling port. Uh, he left Yale. Um, he was kicked out. We don't know why in 1820. Um, he took up the practice of law, uh, a, a prodigious brilliant lawyer, 6,000 court cases. He distanced himself from Judaism. I'm proud to say that he did decline to contribute funds um, when the synagogue that Rabbi Katie Bowman now leads, Turo Synagogue, was built. He married um, the daughter of a prominent Catholic Creole family, Natalie, um, in 1832. He purchased a sugar plantation in 1844. Um, with about 140 slaves, this made him the country's largest Jewish slave owner. To give you some perspective, the second largest owner had about 45 slaves. He had 140. Very few Jews own plantations. Uh, as many of you know, with Southern Jewish roots, most Jews were in the city. They were merchants. They were dry goods merchants. They were a people of the town. They were not people of the land. And a lot of anti-Semites exploit Southern Jewish history by saying that Jews were the largest slave. There were, he was the one. There were a few others. Um, but we can't forget this person. Um, a sugar plantation, by the way, uh, was the worst. Um, it was a factory of death. It, it was the most rigorous, awful existence for a slave. But he sold the plantation returns to New Orleans in 1852. Um, just an unusual personal aside um, about his personal life. He married this woman, Natalie. They had a young daughter, Nanette. Um, the wife and daughter moved to uh, Paris when the daughters won. He stays in New Orleans with his mother, his sister who was a widow, um, and with his sister's daughter. And rumors circulated, and in this book he talks about it, that he was gay and that his wife was um, having affairs. I mean, the very fact that his wife got up and left with their one-year-old and went to Paris was unthinkable back then. Nobody did a thing like that. And even though it was completely normal to take a mistress, um, according to the research in this book, this Southern Jew never did any such thing. High society in Charleston, the women there um, didn't like him. He left few traces of his private life, burning all of his papers. On his deathbed in May 1884, um, I say this not to be pejorative. It's just sad if he was gay that um, he, he would never have been able to say that he was to sully his reputation. It was hard enough being a Jew. Let me explain. Um, he becomes a U.S. Senator for Louisiana in 1853. He becomes good friends with the Senator from Mississippi, Jefferson Davis. In 1861, when the South secedes and forms the Confederacy, Davis reaches out to his old friend, Judah P. Benjamin. And um, what was some of the anti-Semitism he uh, endured? Well, 
In the book, there are letters by the Confederate General Thomas Cobb, if you know that name. His brother Howell was the governor of Georgia and the vicious anti-Semitic um, canards against him. Denunciations, as I told you, from women in Richmond High Society. Um, and when he lost his position of Secretary of State, it's a classic Jewish story. Part of his job was to be a scapegoat. And this, to me, is the ultimate tragic irony. Anti-Semitism, Jew hatred through history, often involves scapegoating Jews for the failings of something in society, a cause or uh, another person who's responsible, explaining the misery, um, an outlet for your anger, a target for your aggression. So this Jewish slaveholder, Judah Benjamin, becomes the culprit for the Confederacy's downfall. There were constant rumors starting in 1863 of Jews seeking riches through secret trading, benefiting from a rise in prices. It's like a story of Shylock. And Benjamin got associated with this too. He was surrounded, the book um, argues, by increasingly poisonous anti-Semitism. Um, by 1865, as you know, the Confederate capital of Richmond falls to the army of Ulysses Grant and Davis and Benjamin and the cabinet flee south. Um, Benjamin remains publicly optimistic, but he separates from his colleagues. He pulls off a dramatic escape. He actually... Um, dons several disguises. He eludes his union pursuers. He endures storms, a shipwreck in the Caribbean. He lands in Britain at the end of 1865. He ends up becoming a successful lawyer there. He wrote, a, those of you who are lawyers may even know his um, book on commercial law to this day, treaty on a treatise on the law of sale of personal property. He never returns to the US, he dies in Paris. Um, blacks and Jews in the South have experienced similar histories of oppression and dispersion through the centuries. But America provided different challenges for each group. We Jews don't evangelize. And so that's why there were fewer Jews of color than there are today. Uh, it's estimated there are at least 10 to 15% of the American Jewish community. Some say as high as 20% are Jews of color. We in our synagogue have Jews of every race. But back then, Jews did not evangelize. And of course, Jews are not a race since you can't become a race if you wanted to. That was the anti-Semitic lie of Hitler um, and the Nazis. In, Jew in Israel, if, if anyone wants to see how Jews cannot be a race, go to Israel. You will see Jews from 103 different countries, tens of thousands of black African Jews. But Jewish immigrants to this country came either in the 1840s to 1860s from Central Europe or the 1880s to 1920 from Eastern Europe. And they were all predominantly white. And white American Jews in the South were spared the legal restrictions imposed upon people of color. Let's move to the 20th century in many of your lifetimes. I'm not suggesting that Jews were exempt from hurtful and damaging discrimination. There were so-called gentlemen's agreements restricting the sale of real estate to Jews in certain neighborhoods, quotas in the most prestigious colleges and universities sharply limited Jewish enrollment, Yale, had a quota in, in, into the 60s. Restrictive policies in corporate business and industry did curtail employment for Jews. 
Um, even in their leisure pursuits, Jews often travel to resorts only to discover signs at the entrance which read no Jews admitted or no Jews or dogs allowed. Blacks and Jews were routinely condemned by the white majority, not for any particular action, but for their mere existence. So anti-Semitism and racism meet in their hatred for who blacks and Jews are without any reference necessarily to what blacks and Jews do. Uh, my life's work has been about Southern rabbis and black civil rights, predominantly in the 20th century. And the historical kinship between blacks and Jews rests upon a comparable, though not identical understanding of what it means to be oppressed. So take the zealous advocacy for minority civil rights by outspoken Southern rabbis, like the one at this temple I'm in right now, named Rabbi Wax, who emphasized the common memory of persecution and enslavement. Wax and other rabbis like him in the 50s and 60s grounded their uncompromising commitment to the civil rights cause with the biblical citation, we too were slaves in the land of Egypt. And while there was a Judah P. Benjamin, he was an outlier. He didn't even contribute to the building of the synagogue and betrayed Judaism, even though he may have himself been Jewish. But what Rabbi Wax and 50 years before him, Rabbi Feinschreiber, let's not forget him, 1918, first Memphis clergyman of any religion to protest lynchings in our city. He led hundreds of ministers. Um, I think looking back, we can say that similar experience is not the same as shared experience. We can talk about once we were slaves in Egypt, but Jews came here for opportunity, not in chains. We escaped the pogroms of Eastern Europe to the Golden Medina, where we were told the streets were paved with gold. And of course, you know the joke, we came here, we learned that A, the streets were not paved with gold, B, they weren't paved, and C, we helped do the paving. But while American jury affirmed its solidarity with oppressed minorities by recalling its own enslavement in ancient Egypt, American Jews, when you look at the 20th century, um, and we're still too close to the 21st century to talk about history, we're still in it, but looking back at the civil rights era, um, in terms of socioeconomic well-being, American Jews as a group far surpassed their African-American brethren and sistren in terms of socioeconomic well-being. Now, let's not fall into the anti-Semitism of a Louis Farrakhan who stereotypes and caricatures Jews as rich. 20% of America's 6 million Jews live below the poverty line. How is that not more known? Because in the Jewish community, we developed a system of family services and federations and other um, high ass and other support groups. So those who are better off take care of the poor and other Minorities, whether racial or religious, have modeled their self-care on what the Jewish community does for our poor. But still, Jews as a group have done all right overall with basic sustenance. So what's been the difference with regard to hatred and history um, when it comes to discrimination in the 20th century? For American Jews, discrimination meant occasional rejection. For American Blacks, it meant human degradation. 
for American Jews, discrimination was more feared than expected. You know the old Jewish memo? Worry now, details to follow. But for American Blacks, it was more expected than feared. For American Jews, discrimination took the form of maybe social exclusion in certain clubs or professional exclusion with certain jobs. For American Blacks, it took the form of lynching, segregation, radical isolation. Now, the 1963 murder of Freedom Riders Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman in Philadelphia, Mississippi, as some of you may remember, it served as a heroic symbol of the solidarity of Black and Jewish civil rights workers who sacrificed their own lives for the sake of freedom and justice for all. But let's remember about those Freedom Riders, except for those who paid the ultimate price, like Schwerner and Goodman, and of course, Cheney but the two Jews, most of them came down on Freedom Summer from Chicago or New York or Philadelphia. I'm not saying they weren't brave, but they went back. They didn't stay in the South. Uh, whereas a Rabbi Becker of blessed memory or a Rabbi Wax, um, and some of you watching this from Memphis and other Southern cities who stayed um, faced a different reality day to day. Um, it's easier to yell about racism from the suburbs of Westchester or from Chicago, and I love Westchester and Chicago, than it is to be proximate to the discrimination right where we're seated. Why is this history important? Why have these three weeks been important? I think because we learn history in order to learn how to change it. That's the point of learning history. I see my mother, she recommended a book to me that I highly recommend, some of you may have read it, um, by Joshua Cohen called The Netanyahu's. It's historical fiction and made the front page of the New York Times um, book, uh, uh, magazine, and the, it's historical fiction, but it's more historical than fiction. Um, and Joshua Cohen talks about uh, a professor um, who teaches history. And he rightly says that history in the modern period that we're talking about tonight was largely about progress, a world that brightened with the enlightenment and steadily improved, a world that would continue to improve illimitably. The past was merely the process by which the present was attained and the present merely the most current stage of what he calls the American superlative, to be overtaken by tomorrow's greater liberation until the ultimate transfiguration of world history into world democracy. Um, so it's a meliorist approach. Things are improving. Um, and it knew no bounds, whether in Germany or in America. It could only grow. It could never end. It was open, expansive. By contrast, orthodoxy's approach to history was closed. There was no past, no present, no future, no history. This, by the way, is not a rant. This is not a polemic. It's just a description that if you take an ahistorical faith approach, and the author in this book talks about this professor who ends up interviewing Bibi Netanyahu's father, Ben Sion Netanyahu, who applies to Corbin College in 1959 to be a professor. It's really Cornell University, where 
Bibi Netanyahu's father actually did go and brought his boys. Um, but back to the professor who interviews Bibi Netanyahu's father, he fashions himself as a Jew who grew up in New York in the old world of Judaism where he went to Orthodox rabbis, you became our mitzvah, and then eventually discovered the life of academia at City University at New York. Um, you know the story of the Jews who went to City College and so forth. But in his description of the Orthodox upbringing, he had, there was no history, there was just time as round and perfect as the earth, which from the moment it emerged from God's spoken light, God said, let there be light. It's been marked by a constant repetition, not of holidays, um, but of oppression, violence, and death between the recurrences of perpetually waiting for a Messiah. And I wanna to quote to you what he writes, who my Christian public schoolmates in New York, again, we're talking pre-war, World War II, were convinced had already come. The Messiah had already come and we Jews, I had failed to notice. Maybe because we, though not I, were too busy being slaughtered. To the God-shuffly rabbis who were force-feeding me these chronicles of Jewish suffering and loss, amid the pallets of stale matzah, American history was synonymous with Goyesha history. America wasn't the New Jerusalem to my rabbis of my childhood. Rather, it was the newest incarnation of Rome, Athens, Babylon, Egypt, Mitzrayim. It was diaspora, Gaulus, and its villains, Pharaoh, Antiochus, Antiochus, Hadrian, Haman, Hitler, Stalin. They weren't individual men perpetrating individual evil of their own accord. So much as they were all just avatars of Israel's original enemy in the Torah, Amalek. American Jews were just waiting for an Amalek of their own, Father Coughlin perhaps, or Henry Ford, the brown shirts of the stain-sheeted clan um, in America. A bit later, it might be Lindbergh, but the particular name and face and embodiment of this hatred didn't matter. All that mattered, these rabbis taught me, he says, was that hate would again find its vessel and Jews would be kicked out of America too, kicked out or murdered, as was our fate in Spain and Portugal, Russia and Germany. Our history was more like a chronology of trauma as received and determinative as the Torah from Mount Sinai. The course could not be altered. The force could not be resisted. Carnage was the Jewish destiny. And those of us who didn't survive as Jews could at least be sure that those who did would interpret our deaths as sacrificial. Dara Horn, dead Jews. Now, what I just read was Joshua Cohen, the author of the Netanyahu's, who after World War II, arrives at a different place than these American Orthodox rabbis of his childhood. He arrives at a similar place seen by my son's namesake and my mentor, this person I'm showing, Dr. Jacob Rader Marcus, the architect and dean of American Jewish history and professor at Amer a Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. We'll get to him a little later. Looking at America, they both saw this historical fiction professor and Dr. Marcus that life wasn't doomed in America. America was different. No one is gonna murder me and my people in this country because we're Jews. As Cohen writes, 
No one was going to drag me and my family off to a death camp or shove us together in an oven. The only uniform my country would ever make me wear was decorated with medals and ribbons. America was the most exceptional exceptionalism. Now, in the book, sidebar, Cohen shows how Bibi Netanyahu's father, who didn't make it as a scholar in, at Hebrew University, because who was at Hebrew University? All the Einstein-like people who got out of Germany, Martin Buber, geniuses. Um, but he, Netanyahu, um, politicizes the Jewish past, turning Jewish traumas into propaganda by connecting crusader-era programs and last week's study of the Spanish Inquisition with the Nazis. Gentiles, according to this view, were part of an inscrutable design to oppress Jews, convert them, unconvert them, massacre them, expel them. Uh, Cohen argues that this is passing off theology as history. It's not God who is doing this, it's bishops, dukes, successive generations of Jew butchering mobs who come down from their clouds when least expected to wield control over Jewish life, to move Jews into ghettos when they couldn't go out or determine when Jews could go outside and when they couldn't, what hats they had to wear, pointy ones, what occupation they could practice, money lending, and maybe perpetrating occasional blood libel riots, death camps. In other words, Netanyahu couldn't believe in an all-powerful God, says Cohen, so much as he believed in the all-powerful Goy, who were the same throughout history. This is a, kind, a different kind of Zionism than those of you who've studied Zionism with me. Uh, Theodore Herzl, Ben-Gurion, Jewish political autonomy. Uh, this was those who refused to wait for the world to give the Jews a homeland. Um, it was there waiting for Jews to take. Netanyahu means he has given us this land. All that we have to do is take it. Um, I don't want to take too much time since it's 742, but the idea linking recent weeks is an ahistorical approach, just as the savages of Arabia hunted down Jewish refugees from Spain in the 15th century, so they are now too in the 20th century, hunting down the refugees from the inferno of the diaspora. The idea of this um, anti-Semitism, of this Jewish Zionism response to anti-Semitism and hatred is that you need to create an army before you create a country. The country would follow from the army. The father of this is Jabotinsky. If you want to study it, Netanyahu was Zev Jabotinsky's American revolutionary ambassador. And while the methods may sound strange to you, like paramilitary camp for Jews in the Catskills, the instincts were correct in the 1930s because the Nazi threat was real. And um, Netanyahu was basically the lead of this revisionist Zionism in the United States. Because to him, Europe was finished. Europe brought death. America was the future, not Britain, where foreign policy was determined by hereditary elites filling the government who are really anti-Semites. But in America, foreign policy could be determined by popular appeal. And this is why America was so crucial. It's the only country in the world in which all foreign affairs were primarily domestic. So um, by the way, sidebar, this is not historical fiction if you read the book. Jabotinsky, the leader of this type of revisionist Zionism, he suffered a fatal heart attack at a militia training camp in the Catskills. True story. So um, why are we talking about this? We've covered history from the Christian era 
to the Spanish Inquisition, who rules Palestine from 1517 to 1917? The Turks. These revisionist Zionists were not fighting for the British who, when World War I ends in 1918, you know the British took control of Palestine, leading to the British mandate. They were fighting against the Turks, these revisionist Zionists, not for the British. I want to close these three sessions talking about something else that happened in 1920. Here's the picture of Dr. Marcus. He's ordained a rabbi at my alma mater, the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And then he's appointed to the faculty of HUC, where he began teaching biblical history. Where does he go in 1922? We talk about history is written by the victors. Well, history is complicated. We have the story of Netanyahu, the revisionist Zionist in Palestine, but we also have in 1922, same time, Marcus goes to Berlin to study Jewish history. Berlin was the Jewish epicenter of the world for scholarship. He earned a PhD there in 1925. After briefly studying at Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 1926, um, he returns to Cincinnati where he lectures um, at HUC until 19, he was my thesis advisor. Um, he lectured until 1995 as professor of American Jewish history. He devoted most of his post-World War II career to American Jewish history. He founded the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati in 1947 on the campus of HUC. I encourage you to visit there. If you ever get to Cincinnati, go to the American Jewish Archives, now known as the Jacob Brader Marcus American Jewish. He's best known for his book on medieval European Jewish history, The Jew in the Medieval World, published in 1938. He died on November 14th. I um, think of him always on his yard site. He made it to age 99. A second optimist, this is how we're gonna end and leave us wondering with a question was Salo Baron. He was the second of the two most renowned influential scholars of the last century, who along with Marcus possessed an uncommon understanding of the Jewish past. Why am I mentioning these two? Because when it came to their prognostications about the fate of European Jewry in 1933 to 1939, their predictions were completely wrong. Prior to World War II, both of them asserted that German Jewry would survive Hitler's persecution, even as the 1930s rages. Salo Baron was optimistic. He found it difficult to reconcile what was happening to Jews with his theory of Jewish history, which is the half full versus half empty. The lacrimose um, theory of Jewish history, you've heard this, that we're the ever-dying people. To Barone and to Marcus, we are the ever-living people. They are now faulted by uh, Jeffrey Gurick of Yeshiva University and other scholars as being naive and hope, hopefully, um, hopelessly optimistic of what the future might bring. I want to suggest to you that we need to be careful about um, blaming historians for not predicting the future right. Because a historian's job is not to prognosticate. It's, it's to teach and learn from the past, not to predict the future. Now, among his legions of students like me, he was known as the Dean of American Jewish Historians. He was the mentor to Jonathan Sarna. He authored more than 300 books and articles. But here's what many remember him for, um, I think, wrongly. He wrote in 1934 as a young historian specializing in the saga of German Jewry in his first full-length book, The Rise and Destiny of the German Jew. This is his prognostication about the future of those under Hitler's increasingly malevolent control. 
I'm quoting Dr. Marcus. German jury has the will to survive. It is exerting every effort possible to human beings to maintain its vitality in the face of overwhelming odds. The lesson of Jewish history, Marcus writes, lends us further assurance that barring wholesale expulsion or massacre would seem rather remote. Remember, this is 33 when he's writing. Even under the implacable hatred of the National Socialists, what has been called the Jewish genius for survival will manifest itself in Germany to be sure there are problems and difficulties, which taken separately might seem insurmountable, but taken in the aggregate, it does not seem that their weight can be sufficient to turn the scales against Jewish survival. So he still holds out hope as late as 1937 that some change for the better would occur before the academic life of German jury was completely undermined. Um, I don't have time to read you more uh, from this, but um, he, he says, uh, reminding, after reminding himself of the chronicles of violent attacks against Jews from the period we studied two weeks ago through last week, he decides that history is on our side. The Jewish masses had somehow always been able to survive. There would be no total destruction. There's never been any countrywide jury that's been annihilated before. Unfortunately, of course, Hitler was no student of history. He didn't know what I knew. And, um, and Marcus later said, of course, that he was wrong. But he said, unless there was a massacre, which was hard to see until Kristallnacht on November 30th, uh, 7th, 1938. One more thing about the Columbia University uh, legend, Salo Baron. He also raised a generation of all these American Jewish historians. And he opposed this idea, when we look at history and hatred, Heinrich Gretz argues, the German Jewish historian, that although the Jewish diaspora produced some good moments, some great minds, yeah, we got Rashi. If you look at Jewish history, he would say it is basically 17 centuries of unprecedented sufferings degradation, unparalleled, unparalleled humiliation, martyrdom, unparalleled persecution in human history. Baron, his optimism about the survival of Jews under Nazism is this half full approach to Jewish history, the ever living Jew, not the ever dying portrayal of Jewish history in the face of human hatred. Here's the amazing thing before I close. Baron, unlike Marcus, never backs off from this optimism. His argument, if you follow me on this, is that Jews, if you look at history, they did well in multinational states. Not when it was one Spain, one religion. And he said that if the Nazis conquer large territories, in the Ukraine, in Lithuania, in the Baltic states, he argued the Nazis would lose their national homogeneity and become a state of multiple nationalities. It didn't occur to him, and you can't blame him, that the multiple nationalities with their long history of Jew hatred might join in the Nazi mass murder and be complicit. And as you know, they were, the Ukrainians, the Ustazi, um, so for him, uh, um, uh, before I close again, the fight against Jew hatred in the 1930s and Nazism, and I would agree with that in 2021, had to be led by Gentiles. And he was optimistic that would happen. We know it didn't happen then. I hope it, it happens, God forbid, um, if the anti-Semitism globally gets worse. He wrote, and I quote, this is Barone, one must bear in mind that Jew hatred, anti-Semitism, is essentially a disease of Gentile people, and only the non-Jew acting on his or her own initiative 
will effectively eradicate it. He added, Hitler's end will take place when a sufficiently large non-Jewish group of upright citizens seeing anti-Semitism as a threat to their own beliefs, interests and ideals may muster sufficient strength and persistence to cut off the Hydra-like heads of the anti-Semitic monster, end quote. So he remains optimistic about European Jewish survival through the dark days of the Holocaust, before Kristallnacht and with Marcus, and even after um, envisioning a possible scenario where even if Germany made itself Judenrein, the newly acquired territories would be more tolerant of Jews. And he also looked to the development of Palestine as a haven that might be um, acceptable as an accommodation. The Nazis wanted Jews in one place, put them there. Um, and by the way, uh, just one personal factor, we never know with these historians um, whether there's a personal factor, but what, he may have had an optimistic view um, because it may have been a personal prayer of Salo Barone's, a hope that his parents and his sister back in Europe would not perish among what turned out to be six million Jews murdered. That hope turned out to be in vain. It's so easy to play Monday morning quarterback um, and to say that Barone and Marcus um, were naive. Um, but before the Nazi takeover, the Jewish population in Germany was approximately 523,000 people. Um, what was the initial response to the Nazi takeover? In the first two years, only 38,000 Jews left. No one could believe what would unfold. Even after the boycott and the first legislations were, were, were imposed, there was a decline in the number of Jews leaving. Jews made peace with the situation and thought it would blow over. Um, even the promulgation of the Nuremberg laws, this is very significant. And the further denial of civil rights did not appreciably increase the number of emigrants. It was only after Kristallnacht that so many Jews left. 36,000 from Germany and Austria in 1938, 77,000 in 1939. And of course, we all know that with every passing year, it was harder and harder to leave. My friends, I hope as we close these three hours together that we won't see history as a monolithic. I hope we'll recognize that the gift of living in the 21st century is the ability to look at all these three distinct eras that we have uh, explored and to learn how our people manage to maintain their humanity amidst the inhumanity. Many of you come to Torah study and even if you don't come to our Torah study, Gunther Plout, on the spine, it says Plout on the Torah commentary. The joke was that uh, Rabbi Plout was the author of the uh, Torah. <laughs> he actually came to Memphis, lived into his 90s, a distinguished reform rabbi. His father, Jonas Plout, led the Jewish orphan asylum in Berlin. There were Jewish, what Jews did until the very end who couldn't get out was they kept learning like we're doing tonight. They kept lighting candles in the darkness. And since it's a full moon tonight, because it's the 15th of Cheshvan, that means two weeks, we will be in the month of Hanukkah. And the message of Hanukkah is that all it takes is a little light to dispel the darkness.
And my hope and prayer is that that's what we will learn from history, that we will continue to study and to believe that we Jews really are agents of hope, that no matter what has befallen us in the world, we still believe in a better tomorrow. And I hope and pray that we'll carry that message forward. It's eight o'clock, as I promised all of you on Facebook Live. Join us on Zoom anytime, Torah study this Saturday, timemphis.org. Things are happening almost every night here and definitely every week. Lila Tov, have a good night. I'll stay on and look forward to reading uh, a beautiful poem by one of you uh, that you sent to me in our follow-up time together. Good night, everyone.